Hello and welcome to another SPAC Insider podcast, where we bring an independent eye in interviewing the targets of SPAC transactions and their SPAC partners. I'm Nick Clayton, and this is my colleague Melina Haddad and I speak with Esteban Saldariaga, CEO of Latam Logistics Properties, and Tom Hennessy, Chairman and CEO of the SPAC 2. The pair announced a $578 million combination in August. Esteban explains why the timing is particularly attractive to do a SPAC deal to accelerate his company's portfolio expansion in the current market climate. And what opportunities and challenges lie in the industrial real estate space in the Latin American region? Tom also explains how the deal came together for his team, which used a unique approach of taking over an existing SPAC to get the transaction done. What is the state of the market for more SPAC deals of that type? Take a listen. So just to start off, Esteban, yeah, I think our audience is somewhat familiar with some of the big trends in the real estate market in the U.S. lately. But could you give a bit of an overview of what the industrial property market is like in the countries you operate in? Thank you, Nick. Absolutely. So the key themes that we're seeing in the logistics real estate space in the markets where we operate in uh, are very similar to those the ones you can see in developed markets. Maybe just a, as a brief intro, uh, we can talk about LATAM Logistic Properties and what our platform is. Basically, we're a leading developer, owner, and manager of Class A industrial real estate of international quality, both in Central and South America. And we're one of the only, if not the only, institutional industrial platforms operating across the region. I would tell you that in terms of trends, what's going on, there are two key themes that are picking up. One of them is for sure nearshoring, and it is the rethink of supply chains in general, getting more proximate to the US. And the other big theme will be e-commerce, which is still in its infancy and it's just starting off in, in the markets where we are right now. To name the specific geographies we're in, it's Costa Rica, Colombia, and Peru, but we're exploring how we can further add market adjacencies to that. Great. And Tom, you know, few people have been a part of more SPAC deals than you through the years. And, and your team has done transactions with companies with quite a range of characteristics. So what were you looking for this time around? And how did that draw you to Latin Logistics Properties? Great. Well, thanks, Nick, for having me today. Thrilled to be here with you. Latin Logistics Properties, or LLP, is, as Esteban mentioned, leading owner, manager, developer of industrial real estate. We too believe in the overall macro themes. So for example, uh, capital inflows tend to follow macro tailwinds. Nearly one in $4 is now being deployed into US industrial real estate, up from one in $10 15 years ago. So in other words, industrial real estate is taking significant market share from other real estate asset classes like office or retail. So we believe strongly in the fundamentals. LLP certainly is a company with fundamentals, high quality at that. So we selected LLP because it checks all of our boxes. Number one, operating model. LLP is the only vertically integrated logistics operator across these markets, Costa Rica, Colombia, and Peru, where they operate. Number two, market position. Proven market leader, coveted multinational investment grade tenants. Business plan, number three, very attainable business plan with long-term lease contracts. That's anchored by a durable competitive advantage through a controlled land bank, tenant pipeline, and operating expertise. 
Number four, return to fundamentals. And I think you're going to find that across SPACs and companies going public these days, caring about operating fundamentals, and LP certainly has that. Predictable cash flows through long-term lease contracts, proven profit margins, attractive unit economics, and dare I say, cash flow. Number five, uh, company leadership. Very accomplished leadership team led by Esteban and Annette with deep industrial and logistics uh, industry expertise. And for those reasons, we're very excited about the prospects of LLP as a New York Stock Exchange listed company. Great. And Esteban, can you run us through some of the major tenants that you have at your properties? And what is your typical lease like? Absolutely. So the tenants that we have, we're really proud of, of, and we see them as partnerships. So we have in our books, we have DHL, we have Expeditors, we have Kunanagel, Kraft Heinz, we have Ikea, we have Pricemart. So we have a very big set of household names that trust us with their real estate operations in these markets. And that's something that we're currently building out. We want to continue expanding alongside those tenants. In terms of, of leases, I would say the original tenor that we're uh, striving for and that we're uh, achieving is between seven and 10 years. We have some contracts that even go up to 20 years in some cases. And we have some some other contracts that are to start up uh, towards the five-year mark. That's basically a summary of how it all lays out. And so with the way that many of these companies are now investing in automation, what kind of demands does that put on you as a facility owner? And how does that impact tenant retention? That's a fantastic point. So that's one of the elements of being class A. Our buildings are embedded with optionality. We keep it simple, but at the same time, we're looking to the future. And what that means is we have features that really define what class A is. To name an example that touches on having uh, automation is having extra flat floors because at the certain uh, clearing heights, you, for example, go to 39 feet in total height, you want to have a flat floor so you can be automation ready at least. So although automation is, is I would say, early and in its early days in Latin America, just because of the relative cost of labor, we're looking ahead and we want to keep our spaces prepared for when and if that um, change comes. As a matter of fact, one of our tenants, a Brazilian uh, consumer goods company called Natura, major player, wanted to have certain automation-ready facilities in, in a couple of markets. And again, LLP, since we're a player that operates in, in, in a couple of markets, we're one of the few who can deliver on that type of specification at the same time in two different geographies. So it is a demand, but at the same time, it, it becomes a competitive advantage for sure. Great. And uh, your materials note, and, and Tom touched upon it as well, that you, you plan on expanding within your existing land bank, but also make acquisitions and possibly enter into some joint ventures on uh, for some properties. How do each of those approaches differ uh, in terms of cost and the economics there? Great point. So the way we look at the company going from the inside out, we already have in our balance sheet controlled and owned land bank that can help us grow from approximately 500, uh, 5 million square feet. Uh, to almost seven. And that's already in our land bank. So it is carried a historical cost. So we have a, a certain advantage there, not only for the visibility because it's, it's ready to go, but also because we were preempting uh, certain shifts. So that's the first layer of how we think about cost and how our land bank provides an advantage and how we 
think about growing. And that's in our current markets. We, we have a path of visibility to essentially double the company over the next few years. You touched on something that's very relevant, which is joint ventures. Joint ventures, we see uh, three benefits from them. One, they augment our capital with local, uh, with local players who want to come alongside uh, LP for investing purposes. The second one is it allows us to mitigate risk and, and, and toggle our relative exposures on a country by country basis or even on a tenant by tenant basis. Lastly, it also gives us certain local capabilities and that's how we think about joint ventures. It's always good to have a local partner, especially when you're growing. Uh, that's why our team is local in essence. We think about it as a risk mitigant. So that's how we think about uh, expanding and, and how we think about growing in, in our current and adjacent markets. And so you've touched upon you know, some of the investment that has to go into these spaces to, to fit the qualifications and, and really the class of properties that you're operating here. You know, how do the unit economics break down with that? So this is a very relevant point and, and, and financial discipline is at our core. At a granular level, LP, LP's business has the potential for attractive, highly attractive risk-adjusted return. And this is the result of strong CapEx management and the ability to secure predictable cash flow via long-term leases. Organically, on a standalone basis, LP can develop assets to double-digit uh, unlevered yields. And since we have a special market positioning, we can obtain accretive debt financing for roughly 60% of project costs, which means we can comfortably leverage our equity returns into the mid to high teens on a cash flow basis. However, those returns we think can be further magnified. At the same time, risk is controlled and mitigated. By securing financial partnership, uh, joint ventures with local equity partners, LP can charge for its development and asset management services. And that creates additional income stream. At the same time, it reduces the equity requirements and therefore uh, creates uh, and improves a better uh, return on equity equation for a company. And to tie it all out, once we account for the expected asset appreciation, once assets are stabilized on a fair market value basis, you can add another 200 to 500 basis points to the returns in, in general. And that's how we think about capital deployment. Again, looking at those, you know, three different approaches to expansion, do you have a preferred balance between those three with like kind of a certain amount of resources allocated towards each type, or is it more on an opportunity by opportunity, case by case sort of basis? One of our our, our competitive edge lies on development, uh, just because that's, that's what we have been doing from the ground up. Uh, however, we are opportunistic on acquisitions as well, Nick. We see that some assets can be repositioned, and there's that's an angle where our development capabilities come in. So we're seeing that for sure. And since there is a limited amount of Class A institutional quality real estate developed, acquiring Class A is already difficult enough, let's say. There are some opportunities for sure. They can complement the growth. But right now, we want to continue growing organically. And through our development initiatives, which is the where we really have our secret sauce. Right. And then I just want to get into inflation a bit, which has been a hot topic in the United States, but it's also been felt in other countries even more strongly. So do you primarily do business and hold debts in local currencies or U.S. dollars? 80% of our leases in our asset base, almost 80% are U.S. dollar denominated, which is the Costa Rican and Peruvian component. Only in Colombia, we operate in, in Colombian pesos. We never have a currency mismatch. Our debts match the underlying assets. Therefore, we do dollar with dollar, peso with peso. All of our 
leases are CPI linked. Some of them even have floors. In some cases, we even have US uh, CPI linkages. Therefore, we have our rental revenues growing along. So when, unfortunately, uh, inflation materializes, it can create certain discomforts, but at the same time, we feel protected with our current leases and their debt is matched. So that's, that provides us a, an angle and a protection element in, in the way we structure our business and the way we look at it. And then has local inflation had any impact on demand for your spaces, given that many of the tenants or are e-commerce fulfillers? I would say that not really in the consumer space because there's still enough momentum going, uh, probably from the of previous years. But what we're seeing is that inflation is probably affecting interest rates. And that's really where we have to manage and have more challenges. Fortunately, we are not a levered company and we have the ability to navigate that. So it's more about not muting the consumer or the tenant demand, which we definitely are seeing. Actually, we're 99% occupied a little bit more. That's why we're doing this capital raise through, through the vehicle. We want to continue growing. It's mostly about how long will rates remain high because it, it does have an impact for a real estate business. Yeah, that goes at exactly where I wanted to go with the next question, really, which is just looking at it. You know, what made you decide that now is a good time for the company to go public? And you know, and and what was the in terms of the the reasons why it made sense? What was the mix between some of the internal milestones you guys had gotten to versus some of the conditions that are out there in the market and, and in terms of getting that timing right? Nick, I think we have come to an interesting inflection point. Macroeconomically, at least at the, in the industrial space level, we're seeing a lot of demand. We're seeing a lot of demand and that's pulling us. Our tenants are asking for more space. And especially because our formats are larger, many of these tenants actually want to optimize and there's a flight to quality because they want to reduce costs given the environment we just discussed. So it's actually something that's benefiting us. And when we look at the possibilities with with our tenants and and how we're setting up uh the plans forward we definitely see that we are at a critical juncture reaching a very interesting inflection point because of the nearshoring and e-commerce demand that's materializing for us and uh, at the same time the company itself is at a, at a very mature juncture too we are fully occupied our revenue and our NOI has been essentially tripling since 2019. So we're in a point in, a point in time in which we're fully occupied. We're seeing a lot of opportunity and we want to have that capital to be ready to go and be ready for this new wave that's coming along. Even though the markets might be challenging, we think we have a differentiated proposition because we have a cash flow positive business. We Our revenues are contracted uh, for the visible future. And we're dollar denominated with high quality tenants. So we think we have a strong backing. And again, we want the capital to continue growing. Just to note, and it's part of the of the structure that we have right now. Our private equity investor backing want to roll over the their existing shares and all the capital that's coming into this transaction will be to fuel growth. And that's why we think we're at the right time to do that. And on that financing side for Tom, you know, you, uh, you stated in the uh, kind of the announcement materials that you're hoping to raise a $25 million pipe. We've seen some signs that things are ticking up in the, the SPAC market overall, but, you know, how is that um, kind of carried over into the, the, the pipe market, which has been tight for some time now? Absolutely. The pipe market has been challenged for nearly two years, as have the SPAC capital markets and traditional IPO markets, and frankly, the equity markets. Nonetheless, as Esteban mentioned, we believe LLP offers a differentiated investment opportunity 
to public capital investors, something that doesn't exist today on the public capital markets. And we believe LP's natural home, like many of the larger industrial REITs that have grown over the years, uh, is on the NYSE. So where LP will have now access to global capital markets and new investors. And so the way we're approaching raising committed capital is on two fronts. One is traditional U.S. financial investors. And the second is strategic local markets investors in Central and South America that likely have large real estate portfolios and have an interest in uh, the region and in growing uh, the real estate asset base. LPs differentiated than a lot of the recent SPAC transactions in that there's intrinsic asset value. They own the real estate. And there has not been a company like LLP uh, that has gone public either through the traditional or SPAC IPO markets recently. So for those reasons, we believe there should be interest. And I'm more optimistic about SPAC uh, capital markets than I have been. And uh, two, over two years, there are some green shoots and we're on our way to a more healthy balance of supply and demand across SPAC capital as, as the SPAC that were raised in 2021 have, for the most part, liquidated at this point. Yeah. And that's actually gets again to what I wanted to ask you next, which is, you know, kind of on that topic, you you and your team have been involved in, in a lot of SPACs through you know, different parts of, of uh, these cycles. This particular vehicle yourself was one that uh, you took over after it had already been listed. What were some of the advantages to that approach, given kind of where we are in the cycle? Yes, we did acquire the SPAC on March 31st from a previous sponsor. And we believe that's an interesting value proposition for all stakeholders around the table. So for us, it's an efficient way to access a SPAC vehicle, both from time to market and capital deployment. TWA happens to have no outstanding public or private warrants. So it's a very attractive vehicle to a target like LLP. At the time that we also acquired the SPAC, we uh, required that all the banker fees and legal costs and accounting costs, the legacy costs be waived or removed. So with the addition of no uh, warrants, plus the reduction of fees on order of magnitude by 50%, we're bringing a vehicle to LLP into their shareholder base that is much more efficient than the average SPAC. And no, a SPAC will never be a traditional IPO, but we believe that this one, TWA, will be as close to a traditional IPO as you can get. And so efficient time to market, attractive vehicle for the target company. The previous sponsor continues to support us and will become a shareholder as well. So it's an attractive value proposition for them. And so all around, we think acquiring existing SPAC vehicles and repurposing them towards our pipeline of high quality companies and, and excellent management teams is much more attractive than raising a new SPAC in this environment. But so Tom, you know, just given where we are in the market right now, you were mentioning that this particular SPAC had you know, very attractive terms. We've seen a ton of liquidations, as you were mentioning as well, with a few, many more SPACs seemingly kind of potentially ending up there still before the end of the year. Do you still, the way you view it, are there still a fair amount of attractive vehicles for takeovers that are still out there? Or do we, do you think that we're about to get to that reset point? It's an interesting question and something, the data that we've been following very closely. 
the wall of liquidations in large part is wrapping up at the end of this month in October of 2023. And so if, if we rewind the clock two years ago, 24 months ago in 2021 was clearly the SPAC peak March of 2021 in, in, in my estimation. And that boom ended around the end of 2021. So fast forward two years, we're coming up on the end of 2023. We think that the SPAC acquisition or takeover opportunity is fleeting because as you mentioned, Nick, most of the SPACs have liquidated, liquidated at this point. And so it's an opportunity that we have pursued throughout 2023. Again, uh, we think it's attractive for all stakeholders around on all sides of the table. Moving forward, it's likely that we get to a much smaller SPAC market, one that in our view returns to 2016, 2017, 2018 levels. There are still SPAC dedicated funds that are supporting the asset class, supporting companies going public and we believe those players will continue to invest and they have been de demonstrating that through 2023, uh, but you'll be left with a handful of seasoned sponsors with track records for performance with credibility in the marketplace to execute efficiently. Great. And then moving forward, how do you plan on balancing your expansion with deleveraging? That's a great point. Essentially, there's an embedded dynamic in which our assets are coming online over the next uh, few months. So essentially, we will be producing revenue to match the debt that we have been using to build out our platform. So it comes out naturally. As a matter of fact, over the last three to four years, we have been seeing that progressive the progressive benefits of economies of scale. So our margins, for example, or, or NOI and EBITDA margins are increasing over time. And additionally, we are deleveraging in terms of EBITDA turns. So we're seeing that respectively, we will have, a, we will achieve that balance. Also on debt manage, I will tell you something that's very positive for our business to just cite an example of what we did in terms of managing our debt. In April this year, we refinanced $107 million in Costa Rica. And we did that on very attractive terms, 25 year total tenor, interest rates of 5.9% fixed for the first year, 6.1% second year, and then floating SOFR plus 1.4. So these are very impressive metrics. And we think it's a testament to the underlying assets that we have, the hard assets as, as Tom is describing, the intrinsic value, but of course, the operational capabilities of LP and the underlying tenancy that we have. And this is something that we did in April of this year after the interest rate regime had changed. So we're proactively managing our, our debt for sure. And that's something we closely monitor. And so do you think you might put public share capital to work for either of those efforts? I think uh, honestly, right now, most of that effort will not be for debt management because we have very solid tenors and maturities. We don't have any upcoming debt maturities. And therefore, our assets are sustainable. The cash flow from our assets sustain the debt. We don't have any maturity that we have to mainly refinance. So actually, the capital that we're raising in this transaction would be for growth, 100% uh, for growth. And then what would you say are the most important criteria that you consider when evaluating a potential acquisition? Very well. I think... When we're looking at acquisitions, it, it probably has to be split, whether it's it's class A and whether it's a, a value-added reconversion of sorts. We have to check, start off with what the tenant looks like, how do they fit within our 
tenant roster, what their prospective plans are. So we for sure look at that. But then we go to real estate basics. We look to their location access. We want to make sure that these are assets that have longevity in them. And if they don't and they need to be repositioned in some form or fashion, we'll have a plan to do that and execute that. One of the benefits that we have for being a proactive manager of pure play logistics platform, we're constantly in dialogue with our tenants. So they tell us where they want to grow. And if we see an opportunity to grow in a certain market, there might be, you know, with a tenant already whispering in our ears about their plans. Well, we, I think we have an informational edge for that acquisition and then we can work it into our numbers. And then overall, what is the development in your business that you find most exciting right now, Esteban? Is it AI optimizing things for you guys or automation or perhaps just the continued growth in the region? I would say the, the continued growth in the region. One of the developments, one we, we take a lot of pride in right now is a very interesting project that we have adjacent to the Lima airport in Peru. So that's irreplaceable real estate. It is very relevant for the economy of, of Peru in general, because Lima is almost uh, 30% of the entire country's population, if not more. So it is it is a critical point in, in the country's network uh, of logistics. And uh, we're seeing a whole lot of demand there. And what we find interesting is being pioneers, not necessarily with AI and these new technologies, not yet, at least at our level, probably your tenants already looking into that or Maybe it'll come through design optimization, architectural improvements. But what we're seeing is they are having a more expanded view in these sites. And I do think they are getting ready for automation at some level because real estate, this circumstances is very expensive uh, and they want to maximize everything they do around there. So we are seeing very interesting tenants and names, which for confidentiality purposes, I cannot mention approaching us and looking at that type of space, which required, let's say, innovation from a financial perspective, because in that particular project, we're using a, a long-term land lease. So this is something that not everybody can do. It's not just about the building know-how that we, of course, have, but it also requires certain financial sophistication to pull these kinds of projects off and keep them delivered on time within budget and keeping our clients satisfied, which is ultimately what we need.